Okay, back to 1 Peter 3. Now, last week we gave really the emphasis of this passage, though this passage is the one that everyone goes to if you're talking about apologetics, uh, <laughs> angelics, uh, apologetics. Um, and because Paul actually, I mean, Peter actually tells us in this passage to be ready to give a defense. Um, so great place to start. But as we saw last week, Primarily, it's not about the defense, that's one phrase, but it's surrounded by how we live. Uh, that, and, and so that shapes the passage to say the context always of giving a verbal defense is that your life is a kind of defense already. Your life has already run interference for you, so to speak. It's already paved the way, opened the way, so that people already, by God's grace, have begun to see your goodness lived out before them, and this can intrigue them, it can draw them, that can cause them to ask questions. Perhaps even the question, it says, if someone asks the reason for the hope that is in you, and that's a positive statement, isn't it? Now, why... How, how do you live the way you do? Why do you have the strength that you, you do? Uh, it is interesting, some years ago, they did a study after a terrible flash flood in Colorado that killed a lot of people, and everybody went through horrible trauma, and an outside group, not Christian group, came in to study the people involved, and they found across the boards that those who believed in Christ had a significantly different approach and healthier approach to the trauma that occurred, uh, which just from this objective standpoint said, whatever you think about the truth of what they believe, it really fortified them in encountering this trauma in their lives. So that might be you know, a question they would ask in that study is like, What's the reason for their hope? What's the reason for their being able to manage this uh, trauma so much better than the average person? Uh, so just, and, and as we read this, you'll see it's, again, that it's just surrounded by this idea of living your life before others. Though tonight we're only going to talk about uh, what do you say? Or what are the kinds of things that would be good to engage uh, unbelievers uh, with as you speak the word to them. Not so much what is the gospel, but maybe what aspects would tend to, where, where you would start to try to convince someone who's flat out against Christianity. And you're trying to make some inroads for them to think about, things for them to in, encounter about the word that hopefully God could use to make them think and ultimately draw them to, him, to himself. Um, but nonetheless, keep on underscoring the place of our lives uh, because overwhelmingly that's where the New Testament puts its emphasis. Not in talking the gospel 
but living the gospel again and again and again. Uh, the New Testament stresses that, as does Peter here, even when in the midst of this, he says, uh, be ready to make a defense. So we'll start with verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And it's most likely he's talking about do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling in terms of the persecution and attacks they're getting from uh, outsiders. Four, verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's interesting that that psalm is now placed in the context of living before unbelievers. So let your keep your tongue from evil against unbelievers, reviling if they revile you, attacking or speaking evil of them if they speak evil of you, and seek peace. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What a high call for us to live out love. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Lord, bless this word. Uh, bless our consideration of uh, the scriptures as a whole tonight as we consider the ways that we might set your truth before others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, giving a reason for the hope that nourishes us, or subtitle could be, commending the gospel by our life and by our words. Commending the gospel by our life and by our words. So, the first category I would give, and hopefully this is no surprise, is Christ himself. Christ himself, focusing on Christ, who he is, is absolutely always the best thing as you're able to do it, to set Christ before others. There's so many testimonies of people who were uh, flat out against Christ, even atheists, been invited to do Bible studies in the New Testament, Bible studies in John, etc., with no other point but just let's study the Bible together, who've become believers because of the power of just seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think central to our apologetics is simply this, to proclaim, make known to him who Christ is. Let the wedge of the beauty of his person be driven into their lives. Let him at least be a difficulty that they cannot easily 
dismiss. And certainly the revelation of Christ himself is that which is most likely to draw them after God because he is the revelation of God. This is certainly putting your best foot forward. Um, and if you can just get people to talk and think and even read and study uh, and discuss the person of Christ, then they're uh, exposed to the very heart of the gospel. Uh, that is where the faith is born, and we need to let that word loose wherever we can be. So uh, when you're thinking about apologetics and defending the faith, don't think necessarily in the first place of how do I prove that there's a God or how do I prove the scriptures or whatever, but let me just get Christ to them if possible, if they will listen. Let's talk about the person of Jesus. Now, issues can come up. Well, how do we know what this is, if this is true, what they say about Jesus? But as you go through it and as you get into the personal testimony of people who talk about Jesus, then you get to encounter those questions. But here are just a few things, and this is certainly not exhaustive, but a few things to think about as you're thinking about setting Christ before someone. One, one first thing I would say is his fantastic, claims for himself, okay? The fantastic claims that Christ himself made. And that, that puts something in their lap that they got to deal with. You know, what do you do with this person who said these things about himself? Because people usually, if they're not just so antagonistic, they dismiss him as some crackpot that somehow influenced the world. Most people have a kind of fundamental idea that he's one of the good people in the past. He was a good religious person along with, you know, Muhammad and others or whatever. But they, that's where they stay. But they basically have him in the category of a good man who talked about loving people. You know, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got uh, the, the law of love and that kind of thing. But what do you do with these claims of this so-called good man? So I would advise you uh, as your own exercise, we're going to start with John chapter 5. You can turn there, John 5. Um, but I would advise each one of you at some point to start at the first of John and not only uh, what John says about him, but then what Jesus says about himself. Sometimes that's more important because you say, Hey, this is what Jesus said. What are you going to do with this? You know, how do you dismiss him as just a good man when he makes these claims for himself? And you've probably heard Lewis's statement that uh, the things he said about himself, he's either somebody on the level of a poached egg or one of the most evil people that's ever lived, or he's the son of God. He doesn't leave you any option besides that. Uh, a good man doesn't go around talking about himself in this way. Uh, either he's a crackpot or he's evil or he's the son of God. And that's the kind of thing you want to drive into people's hearts and just say, you've got to come to grips with who he says he is and who he's presented. Uh, and you can, you know, if you choose not to believe, that's fine, but just know what you're up against, you know, in this regard. So in chapter 5... Uh, but but uh, what I was going to say is start in John, go through, this is just one place, you could go through any of the Gospels, but John perhaps the best, and just write down passages 
where Jesus is talking about himself and you realize he's not talking about himself just being an ordinary man here. He's some kind of superhuman, some kind of super amazing relationship with God that he claims exclusive uh, rights to. Uh, and what do you do with that? Now, this will also create more awe in your own heart for him to realize, gosh, this is amazing that God came uh, to earth in this way. My own father, who is past now, but um, had, I wasn't sure for many years where he was in regard to Christ, although he sang in the choir at the Methodist Church and uh, was in church all the time. But just pretty, it was maybe a year or two before he died, I got a call from my dad, and he has, had a trembling voice. And he said he was teaching in Sunday school the book of John. And this was, <laughs> I don't know of any conversation that's ever just blown my mind as much as this one. Uh, and tell me how far people can be from understanding who Christ is. But, but my dad had been teaching from John chapter 1, and he said, almost whispering it to me, he said, Darwin, Jesus was God. I mean, just like that. It hit him like a ton of bricks as he had never hit him before, that Jesus really was God on earth. And though we think, yeah, well, why, we know, no, when that hits you, you know, when you go from thinking he's a good man to, wait a minute, this is God on earth. And that's what these passages in John lead you to realize you just can't dismiss him as a good man. He says too much. And John says too much about him. So go through John, write all these. You could have your own collection of passages, and if you ever happen to be given the opportunity to talk with somebody, you can feel all the more confident to say, well, no, he's not a good man. Let me show you. you know, and you go through John, and y'all read it together or something. Take a lunch or, or a coffee or something and say, look, can, may I read you what he says about himself? That kind of thing. And that's a friendly way to go about, obviously. So uh, in John uh, chapter 5, he says in verse 20, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Whoa. God raises the dead, gives them life, and he says, yeah, the Son gives life to whomever he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Those are blasphemous words if it's said by a man. You understand that? That's blasphemy if he's a human being just writing and saying, you cannot glory, glorify God unless you glorify me. I would hope that you would run me out of this place if I said something like that, right? Um, that's the kind of thing that is, is stated. And then later in verse uh, 39 of chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So here's a man 
claiming the whole Old Testament is about me. Oh, wow. Can you imagine a statement? That's far beyond anything that could be said by a human being. And, and I'm just giving a few of the many, the dozens and dozens of passages that you could go to. Uh, later in chapter uh, 6, I am the bread of life. So he's saying, I am the source of all life. I am. Not me for the Father. He doesn't even mention the Father here. I am the bread of life. This is a claim to deity. It's a claim to, to, to be the source of all life, whatever. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And sometimes if you're reading it this way, you start seeing these passages even different. We're so used to this. I'm the bread of life. But what a phenomenal statement that this is from the Lord Jesus to, to declare himself to be this person. And then in verses 37 to 39, all, the Father, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've come to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will that I should lose nothing. But of all that he's given me, raise it up on the last day. I will raise it up. So he's the center of the final resurrection when all the dead will be raised and all the people who are on earth will be transformed, he is the one that's going to do it. Astounding statements. Then on uh, down, verse 46, uh, not that anyone has seen the Father except whom is he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Wait, wait, what are you talking about? And of course, he's talking about his preexistence. I came from the Father. I know the Father uh, in this unique relationship that he has with the Father. Well, I'm just saying that these are the kinds of things to, you know, if you can get the opportunity to push in and just say, what do you think about that? Now, I'm not saying they're going to be converted on the spot, but at least they're confronted with the true Christ who spoke of his own majesty uh, in, in these ways. Uh, later in the end of John chapter 8, uh, verses 56 and following, uh, is that famous passage where he says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So he's, he's saying that he is who Abraham saw. He is the one that Abraham uh, looked forward to. And, of course, there, the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You know, statements like that that you may be familiar with. Um, Mark 2 is a favorite passage because that's the one where Jesus is in the, uh, in the house, and they let the man down, you know, through the roof. And his first words, you think, are, be healed, but he knew, you know, in being the Lord, that this man sought really forgiveness and, and needed the grace of God, and he pronounced on him, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the Jews reacted, didn't they? So, who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? Nobody can forgive sins except God. And he understood what they were saying and what they were mumbling. He says, so that you know that I have authority to, 
to forgive sins on earth. Let me say to the, because, you know, if you say that, who knows if you really forgave his sins? You know, you don't know. He just said it. That's all. Well, let's bring it to the test and I'll, I'll give you a live demonstration. You get up and take your pallet and walk. And then you'll know I have authority to bring him new legs. I have the authority to forgive people. You know, that kind of, uh, you know, story to just read somebody and say, what do you think about this? Here's, here's the Lord Jesus uh, forgiving someone and then claiming that uh, through his, uh, you know, healing this man to demonstrate that he has that authority. Um, and, of course, all the firsthand testimony of the Gospels, remembering that Mark likely is giving Peter's uh, story and Matthew's giving the direct story. Uh, John is giving the direct story. Luke, as he indicated, uh, got the direct story straight from firsthand witnesses. And so all these descriptions uh, of calming the sea or turning water to wine or feeding 5,000 people, these are firsthand testimonies from people. Um, just like as uh, I'll just give it ahead of time, in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and following, Peter describes the uh, transfiguration on the mountain when God said, this is my son. And he says, we're not here delivering you well-made myths, you know, made-up myths by somebody. He said, we were there. We heard the voice, you know. <laughs> At least when you're talking to someone, you say, look, this is a man that was standing there that night, and he's underscoring the fact that he's not making this up. This is firsthand testimony. All of this is firsthand testimony. So you've got to deal with it one way or another. You can say all of them are crazy, you know. hundred disciples uh, at the time of the Pentecost are all crazy, but they have a uniform testimony uh, of, uh, of the resurrection of Christ, etc. So his fantastic claims, secondly, obviously, is the resurrection itself. Um, and everything surrounding it. And this is Paul's approach, 1 Corinthians 15, when he's the whole the chapter on resurrection. By the way, somebody tell me when it's 10 till, because I left my phone in there on purpose. But where are we now? What time? Seven what? Oh, 17 till. So we only have seven minutes. Okay. All right. Boy, it's been a long time on that first point. Um, but one of the things you may recall in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, when he describes the resurrection, you see how careful he is, and just matter of fact, to say, I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why would he say that part, most of whom are still alive? Anybody? Like, you could check with these people, okay? They're still around, these 500 people. They're still around. Go talk to them. Go ask around. They all saw him raised from the dead. That's the kind of testimony, first-hand testimony that uh, the apostles were, were giving. Then it says he appeared to James, all the apostles. Last of all, 
he appeared to me. I'm a direct witness of the resurrection of Christ. So that's a place to at least let someone think about the reality that this kind of testimony, firsthand testimony, is given. And the fact that the disciples, this came out of the left field for them. They had no idea, though they should have. But it, they had to get their minds around the fact that he was raised from the dead. And you remember, of course, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I put my hands in his wounds. Right? That's the embl- that, that shows you that they weren't sitting on pins and knees. When is he going to be raised? When is he going to be raised? It just absolutely floored them. This is not where they were going. They were down and out, of course, upon the death of Christ. Um, but it radically changed the disciples. And as a part of that, another place to go is to say, explain why Paul, a zealot, and zealots, as a zealot, he was engaged in violence, and zealots later were engaged in huge violence against the Roman Empire. And Paul was just one of them. And that's why he was holding the coats when Stephen was being stoned. He's absolutely uh, agreeing with that. And he's going to uh, Damascus to get more of him and throw him into prison. How could this man, so devoted to the destruction of Christianity, then be turned around to be the greatest champion of Christianity and to suffer throughout the rest of his life because of his testimony for Christ, to suffer hugely. How in the world could that have happened? At least that's the kind of question to at least put before someone if you're getting to have those kind of conversations. And you best want to have those conversations in a friendship relationship, you know, where you could have one, not just a conversation, but a lot of talk about these things. Um, you know, he gave his testimony three times in Acts in addition to the event itself in chapter 9. He kept giving this, this story. So Luke makes it a huge part of the story of Acts because the primary evangelist to the Gentiles, beginning chapter 12 for the rest, this is how he was converted. This is how God entered into his life and turned a man who was trying to destroy the church into one who basically... Uh, gave his life away to win more for the church. Uh, Paul's testimony or Paul's conversion is just an incredible aspect, I think, of our uh, argument. A third thing I would urge you to think about is just the romance of the gospel, uh, that the beauty of... Because we love stories where the prince rescues the princess from the evil dragon, right? I mean, that's just a favorite story. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of history, which fascinates me that God, uh, I, this, this girl, who's a, she was a 10 years old at the time. Her mo- mother and father were both English professors, so she was an incredible reader, you know. She read Harry Potter one summer, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but she came to me with her mother asking about why suffering and, and sin occurred in the world. Uh, not that I have those answers, but we engaged and talked about it. Now, because she was such a reader, uh, 
I said, uh, Madeline, do you, have you ever read a book that was really a good book that didn't have evil in it? And she said, turned her nose up, and she said, well, children's books. You know, I said, I know, but we're not talking children's book, you know, real book. She said, no, they all have evil in them. I said, okay, this doesn't explain everything, and it doesn't satisfy everything, but for some reason, God decided he was going to make a fantastic story with heroes in it and conflict and that the good and the heroes would win in the end. And that's the kind of world, that's the kind of story he wanted to write into this world. And while it didn't satisfy everything for her, as it does it for me, at least you realize that God is a kind of adventurer in that regard. Like one writer one time pointed out, in paradise, there was a dragon, Satan, but in paradise, and you're just thinking, God, what are you doing? That paradise was a place of conflict. It was a place of war from the beginning, before the fall. That's a head scratcher, you know? But that's what God has done. So this, this uh, it, it, I think it helps for people to realize that we have a huge picture of what happens, but especially that in this story, the king comes and rescues his bride through his own death. That's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable romance that God becomes this king, this prince, to come and rescue us that became his bride who had destroyed ourselves. I mean, it's, it's better than, because most of the, most of the stories, the bride was pure and fun, you know, wonderful and all this, but got accosted, uh, stolen by somebody or captured, whatever. But in this story, the bride has destroyed herself and corrupted herself. And even then the prince comes and rescues her. Um, and along those lines to talk about what, what are the most noble people, the people we honor the most in our uh, society? It's people who have lost their lives for others, you know, soldiers or policemen or firemen, or sometimes it's a mother who sacrificed herself for her children. That's the height, we think. Even as Jesus said, no greater love has any man than he give his life for his friend. We all, the whole world recognizes that. We'll play into that and say, you know what? That's who that's what the scripture says God is. Now, there are a lot of other things you have to cope with, but isn't that a, a noble, glorious idea of God that he is the one who sacrifices himself for others? If that were true, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> that's the kind of God there is and not another kind of God? You know, so... I think arguing that way about uh, or, or just talking openly about um, the beauty of the story and the beauty of this God who has so given himself in that way. Uh, I think along those lines, the beauty and nobility of the Bible's ethic is certainly uh, something to bring in that the Bible's ethic follows that and says that we're then to lay down our lives for one another. The Bible's ethic for a husband 
is to lay down his life for his wife. What society, and especially the Roman Empire, that was a shocking statement when women were, in many cases, they weren't quite property, but uh, in many cases, uh, you could do anything you wanted to to a woman, uh, hurt her or whatever, because that's the way it was. And here comes along this statement, no, she will not serve him, he will serve her, and he will hurt himself and harm himself for her sake rather than the other way around. That kind of ethic that follows the, the, the ethic of who God is and who he revealed himself to be, and then he tells us to love one another as he has loved us, and the call, for instance, to take someone to Philippians 2 and say, look, look what it says here. We're to count one another as more important than ourselves. And look how this is rooted in Philippians 2. Have the same mind that was in Christ, who didn't count equality a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out and became humble, even a servant to the point of death. What about a God like that? And then what about an ethic that says we must live like that God and count one another as more important? What do you think about how a society that would look like that and people would count one another that way? And then think how powerful it is if we can invite people into our church and they actually see it, you know? They actually see it. It's like that's strong right? That is strong to see that kind of love and sacrifice and counting one another as more important rooted in the very act of God and the very character of God himself. Um, so a few thoughts. Uh, I th we're going to do this again next Sunday night because we're not uh, past the first page. <laughs> so, um, but and any, any ideas you have, you want to text me or things, questions that are raised, I'd love to hear them anytime. Uh, and I'll try to take those in consideration as well.